Kia ora e hoa nau mai hari mai ki te wharinei, mō tēnei kaupapa, nā puka puka o Elizabeth Knox, i tahi o nā tonga o te au huri huri. Kia ora everyone and welcome, I'm Noelle McCarthy and it is lovely to be here this morning in this home of books, such a fitting place for our conversation. Thirteen novels, several novellas, and a book of essays Elizabeth Knox has written. This morning we're talking about her latest, The Absolute Book, and what a wonder it is. Funny and sad and comforting and disquieting and ambitious and audacious and strange and necessary. It's about fairies and demons and gods and monsters and ravens and mule skinners. And it's about books. It's about one book in particular, but many are referenced and all are written about with the intelligence and the familiarity and the devotion of a truly great reader, as well as a truly great writer. Please join me in welcoming Elizabeth Knox. Um, and we have a treat to start with because you're going to read from the absolute book. Yes, right. I thought I'd just sort of settle myself down by reading. The question is, is it an experiment? Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> sometimes I go like, oh, I start having editorial moments again. I've had so many goes at this book by now with, you know, publishers overseas. You know, I have many editors at the moment. All right, so this is Taryn, who's the uh, protagonist, and she is uh, with a, a uh, mule skinner who is a person who collects trophies. He's a, he's a hunting guide. And she's met him through her husband, who is very rich. And at this point, she has realised that he's turned up to do something for her because she's kind of beguiled him with her story of her sister who's, who was killed. This is also the scene where some major characters, including the other major character of the book, walks in unrecognised by the book. Because this is a book in which things are hidden, revealed, hidden, revealed. So, yeah. It was a dull, turbulent summer of overcast days where noon could look like twilight. But it was still light at 7.30 when they got to that stretch of road and the green tunnel of oaks. Taryn wasn't certain she'd recognise the exact spot after nearly seven years. And if she didn't, if the sight didn't jump out at her like a savage animal, did that disqualify her desire for revenge? Then she saw it, the crime scene, undressed now. Police photos from the trial had directional arrows and those things like place cards at a banquet table, except with numbers instead of names. One, the blood stain on the tree trunk. Two, a dropped shoe. Taryn pulled in. The road was narrow, but there'd be room to pass. What had Weber been thinking when he tried to make out that he'd just wandered a little off course? The mule skinner said, I didn't realise how close we were till we passed the monument. St. Sinig's Cross, Taryn said. I thought you were asleep. They got out and shook off their stiffness. Taryn said, how did you know Weber was about to be released? You said six years, five with good behaviour. I picked a point between. The mule skinner's fists were in his pockets, 
though the evening was mild. Don't ask me for anything, he said. Then you can truthfully say, I didn't ask anyone to. Two, she echoed, without a tone of query. It wasn't a prompt. You only have to say no, if that's what you'd prefer. Taryn didn't say anything. Instead, she led him across the road to Beatrice's oak. A breeze passed through the forest and the leaves, still tender, made the sound of fluttering fairground pennants. The mule skinner took one hand from his pocket and put it on the rough bark of the tree trunk. It can be accomplished without you knowing any details. Even when? Even that? And then what? She put a hand on the trunk too, beside his. Then nothing, he said. This will only work if we've no further contact. So I'm in England for family reasons, then I'm back in Canada, and you are the wife of a former client, and that's all. She removed her hand. I don't know that I believe you. I feel like you've started a count. I'm waiting to hear you call out, coming, ready or not. He shook his head. Do you have any idea what you're like? What do you mean? You're like a heroine, he said. She was about to respond, then who is my hero, because she really should make him say it, because how could she trust him to only want that? When they were both roused by the sound of hurrying footsteps, someone was coming from the direction of Princess Gate Magna, walking with strange slapping footfalls. The mule skinner took Taryn by her arm and drew her off the road and into the forest. They leaned on a dry, moss-furred tree trunk, his arm about her waist. The person came into sight, a barefoot young man wearing a shapeless, mushroom-brown, home-knitted jersey, too thick even for a chilly summer. His trousers were wool too, a tweed, fawn-flecked with white. Homespun hippie clothes and shades similar to his dark skin, which made him somehow difficult to see. The young man had an armful of cardboard parcels, books by the look of it. Barefoot with books hurried past their hiding place. His footfalls receded, then changed as he left the road. The undergrowth rustled. The mule skinner tilted his head to peer around the tree, his motions stealthy. It was then that the young man lost control of his burden. Taryn heard a breathy curse and a series of thumps and crackles. One package tumbled through the bracken and landed near her, and Barefoot came to retrieve it. He bounded into view, stooped to seize the errant parcel, straightened, and they came eye to eye. He appeared surprised, but not alarmed. I beg your pardon, he said. He turned and walked away, leaving a palpable bristle of curiosity in his wake. It was disconcerting. If only she and the mule skinner hadn't hidden, they wouldn't have looked furtive. The mule skinner moved away from her. He said, I'll follow him, find out where he belongs. But he's already seen us, not me. I turned my head. For an uncanny moment, it was as if this taciturn woodsman became completely transparent to Taryn. She suddenly understood that he liked to stalk people more than animals, because people had the habits of people, and he supposed that if he watched the right quarry closely, he might come to know what kind of animal he was. He couldn't get behind himself, but he could follow 
a civilized, book-buying, strangely camouflaged, creature-swift stranger, and that act of stalking would help him settle some of the things about himself he didn't understand. The mule's going to melt it into the forest. He made less noise moving on his sturdy boots than the young man had unshod. Taran called after him, why give the guy another opportunity to see you? He ignored her fierce whisper. Taryn stayed put. The skin all over her body was stinging as if she were sunburned. Was this shame? Why should she be ashamed? No passing stranger could read her intentions, and they were so far only intentions. Taryn understood that her discomfort was only a small foretaste of what it would be like if the crime she incited with her silence was discovered. She was honest enough to see the trouble coming, but still kept thinking about herself, what she felt and wanted, not about the mule skinner, her instrument. She was weighing up the cost to herself, the risk of terrible public shame, but it never crossed her mind that by doing this, she would break the locks on all the doors to her soul. Taryn Cornick didn't know she had a soul. She was tired and chilled, the bracken hadn't seen the sun and its furred roots were silvered by last night's dew. She stepped back onto the road and shook her feet. In the treetop, a bird ruffled its wings as if an imitation. Taryn looked up, saw a serrated shadow folding back into the darkness of the thick branches of the wounded oak. Jet eyes caught the light. Crow, Taryn named the bird, remembering her grandfather, pointing his stick as they crossed a field hand in hand. Crow, Corvus Corone. The bird shuffled along the branch and made itself visible against a shrinking valve of dark blue sky. It was huge, night in a tree. Taryn saw it was the rarer bird, not often found this far east. Corvus Corax, raven. Taryn sat down between the tree roots that had once cradled her sister, she put her head in her hands. Ock, said the raven in a regretful baritone. <laughs> this made Taryn laugh, but when she looked up again, the raven was already halfway along the darkening tunnel of oaks. Just before it disappeared, a second raven flew out of the woods and joined it. And I'll leave it there, thanks. Mm. <clears throat> Thank you for that, Elizabeth. Listening to you read that passage, I'm struck that everything we are going to find out, everything that's going to be explored in the next 600 pages is hinted at right there, isn't it? Yes, it tells you, like by page five, you've actually told pretty much what's being looked for in the book. But of course, what's being looked for isn't the solution to the book. Okay, I want to stay with Taryn to begin with. Um, what she was about to do, she's hovering at the edge of something. She's enacting something in that passage you just read. And it is an act of revenge in response to an act of brutality, isn't it? Yes, yeah. She's, um, she can't get over the murder of her sister and she can't bear the fact that the murderer who was only tried for manslaughter because they couldn't prove intent, mm -hmm. which if anyone wants to say isn't probable, it's happened, personal experience happening here. So um, it played out differently, but it was the same, mm. same thing, pretty much. Um, 
so she she can't be the fact that you know this 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 murderer is going to be in the world and her sister isn't anymore. And if she had to accomplish the revenge herself, she probably would have been utterly helpless. She, would, she wouldn't know what to do, but she just manages to beguile this person who is willing to do it. And she never tries hard enough to think why he's willing. Mm. And, you know, this is not the end. He says, you know, we'll be, this, this is only going to work if, if we never see each other again. But that's not going to happen because he's expressing his needs and his mm. needs are different. He's not just willing to do it, he wants to. He do wants. It. <laughs> he, he wants to. He's trying to. He, he's a person who isn't quite alive in his own emotions. So he latches onto her powerful feeling, mm. he enacts her revenge, but, you know, it doesn't fill the, mm. you know, the kind of helpless gap that's inside him. So the, the book doesn't really. It only. Suge- he never understands himself or explains himself enough that you get that from him. So Taryn's left to try and work out what the hell has happened to her and and she, because she's so deeply responsible, she is at least in the end responsible to try to understand what she's done to this man that who's taken the revenge for her. Mm. So, yeah, so that's a kind of one of the stories that plays itself out. But in the meantime, she does break all the locks on the doors to door to her soul. So, mm. yeah. She's like a heroine, you read. Yes, and that's this, what he says. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And this is the story of her, I read it as the story of her becoming a heroine. Yes. Becoming yeah. herself. And yeah. it's a very relatable story, this story, in the sense that you start off with a character who's been devastated by an event in her life that she had no control over and didn't expect. And then she proceeds to make a lot of mistakes. Yes, she does. Yeah, there's a story of someone who just basically, you know, has a lot going for her and then is broken by something and then continues to compound her difficulties. Um, Yeah, and and then in the end figures out how to make herself useful. Yeah, I mean, it's very much a story where the the most important characters are finding how to make themselves useful to the world. Yeah. And they certainly, they yeah. do find yeah. those ways. And useful to each other as well. There is such a tenderness in some of these relationships. One of the characters, as you, as you read, is only glimpsed. There's something about him that means we can't quite ever see him. No, no, him. that's right. Yeah. And yet between he, he and Terence, something forms, a, a relationship forms, a very real and powerful relationship. Yes, a, a, a kind of a... Um, Terence, one of my heroines, and I've got a number of them, a, a, you know, if anyone wanted to trace the line through my books, who are alienated mm. by trauma from their own sexual self. That's a kind of a thing she's got going on. With her, it was the intention of sexual violence that caused her sister's death. And she just, you know, she just basically forms a kind of a carapace of of suspicion about men's desire. So she has a marriage. She gets married. She gets man, married, but, but only because she's completely in control, because that's someone else she's beguiled. So, so the thing is about Shift is that it's not that they have a brotherly and sisterly relationship, but in the end, he's the person she replaces her lost sister with. Mm. Yeah. 
um, in as much as she feels she has to look after him too. Although he's a, you know, he's a he's a godlike being basically. <laughs> so she she is she and terribly attractive. I mean, I don't know if it was just me, but towards the end, I was thinking. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's something there. Yeah, well, you just don't you just don't know what's going to happen yes. with everybody towards the end of the book. You can you can you can you can run off the end of the story going well. Okay, so apart from what they've set themselves to do in relation to you know various like yes, when the demons finally perfect the the control of the language of mm. command, which is keeping them suppressed by fallen angels in hell, and make their their bid to seize back their homeland because they're the native people of hell. Yes, the fairies have offered to help them. And then, yes, the fairies are helping save Earth, the world we're mm. living in. And all these things are happening. And, and why did Shift say that the garden that he makes in purgatory mm. will one day be a gate? A gate to where? What's his intention there? What's mm. going on? So you can run out the end of the book because it doesn't answer all its questions. No. Because it leaves you thinking, well, people have made promises. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And, so is it and still the, going? Is the book still going somewhere? You mean in my head? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, so, yeah, it's my, my current thing. It's, it really depends on what happens to it with, with this overseas publication mm-hmm. business because, you know, you, do, you start doing the kind of, do, do I want to... If, if, if this book ends up being a wound on my soul because it didn't work as well as I hoped, you know, this is a thing that happens. Do you, do you go back and enter that world again? But then the world itself is so attractive. And I'm just sort of thinking of little things like, um, I don't, I mean, I'm talking as if everyone's read it, so I'm sorry. But, mm. yeah, I'm just, yeah, I, I, I'm not good with the no spoilers. And also the book so, does so much, it's almost mm. impossible to figure out what would be a spoiler. Look, I think after an hour with you, if you haven't read it, you'll read it, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, my idea would be, wouldn't it be great if we were at Princess Gate, that's back in her family, and, and her father, who is a famous... If, if you don't know her, Taryn's father is a famous actor who has been in playing the bluff fellow, the bluff, you know, fun, slightly funny fellow in a fantasy trilogy that was filmed in New Zealand by somebody called Peter and is now currently in, well, in the time of the book because the book takes place mostly over 2017 is currently filming the, you know, second, penultimate season of a large fantasy epic which he has been involved in, a TV <laughs> epic fantasy property. So, you know, um, and which doesn't finish. So in the very last chapter, he's part of a theatre troupe that's travelling around showing the final season as a form of a, mm. of, of a stage play with puppets. Yeah. With several um, sort of substitutions of Subst- various cast members as supernatural yeah. beings appear. Yeah. Yeah. Her- yeah. Well, no, yes, but no, that's no, there are no, there are no, yeah, there are no supernatural beings in his, his play at the end. But, but my idea was to have them, him try to stage Midsummer Night's Dream at, at Princess Gate, casting, um, casting the fairies as, fa- casting real fairies as fairies. <laughs> and, uh, which yeah. is typical just of the, the playfulness. Poss- the comic yes. possibilities of this, this, this little idea that I have going on is, yeah, is great. Yep. <laughs> there is such a playfulness in this book. And yet, 
you know, I, I perceived an irony there because it is it is so joyful in so many ways and there is so much delight in these worlds. And yet the character who sort of puts everything in motion, whose emotions act as the sort of the force around which everything re- rotates is Taryn, yes. who has been brutalized and is grief stricken. Mm. Yes. So it's her it's her grief that's sort of putting everything in motion. Yes, but there's so many things in this book broken. For instance, mm. the, the, the she, the, the, you know, the fairies, the she, they had this beautiful place, they love the Sid, and for a start they've stolen that territory from, from the demons, demons and yes. changed it to suit them. And, um, and, they, and they have ended up paying a tithe to hell every hundred years of many, many human souls. And that's why they give all these, these, these human beings, they take these human beings, kind of like wholesale, and um, hold on to them for a long period of time in which these people are blissfully happy. And they're, all the people they've taken, they either want to keep forever because they're like talented people who happen to have TB and be coughing their lungs out, so they whip them away just before, and, you know, did the replacement with the mm. swamp log thing, you know, whatever. Um, or they're, or they're, they've taken them purposely for the tithe. So, and then they, have, they treacherously hand them over after 200 years of happiness where these people think that they're loved. So there's a whole lot of very dark practices and betrayals and mm. treachery. And, and the whole book has to work its way towards, you know, a manageable life and uh, that's a good word responsibility towards other people in the world and uh, in this case they're worlds but it's the same principle it's the same principle across the worlds you you know you said it's very dark the 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 bargain or the setup that involves tithing human souls in order for the fairies to keep their place in their land but it, it it also feels very practical and sort of historically realistic, you know, reading about that, you can't fail to think about the compromises or the setups that we have as societies and yes, always well, have had. Colonisation and yeah. so forth. It's, yeah, and, and, and the, they begin as exiles, they were sent away, they had to find somewhere to stand. Mm. So there's this whole, um, you know, this kind of... Um, <sighs> mismanagement and and expedience towards mm. people that that has to be kind of you start moving towards a better world rectifying it and that it has to be negotiated and i suppose one of the principles that i have i say this to my students because they've all they've all watched the same things is when they're talking about protagonists and antagonists when we're coming up with um the the world that that because I do a world-building course, and it's a collaborative thing. They write a novel together every year, my students. So um, they start talking about protagonists and antagonists and the necessity of, um, you know, conflict to generate plot. And then I remind them of um, Miyazaki Hayao's Princess Mononoke, which has uh, many competing interests in it, but every single person in that book is defending Mm. um, something worth defending and 
their interests are in competition with other people. You go, yes, yes, I'm on their side. I'm on their side. I'm on their side. And I was trying to reproduce mm. that. I was trying to do a book in which there were, there were, you could be on everyone's side. And the thing was to try to work out how to make it, to make it work. You yes. Know? And it's a, it's a sort of an abject lesson in humility as a human being by the end of it, because humanity is saved by the by, right? You know, yes, that's right. The, Collat- collateral, collateral salvation rather than collateral damage. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Some people nice. get, I, I kind of like to talk about that because I, I wrote that and I find that ending very satisfying, but I also do find it an uneasy ending. And it's, it's, an, it's an ending that absolutely delights some people and consoles them. And they go, wow, oh boy, I wish that could happen. And my aim was to produce a wish fulfillment fantasy by the end of it. Not so that I could just make people go, oh my God, that's so lovely. Boy, that's, that's, I, I, I'm lovely to live in that moment for a moment. But also to put them in touch with what they're wishing for, which is for somebody more powerful than us to come along in a time of crisis to take your things in hand, make the right decisions and do the right things, even if those are, seem like extreme things. Well, we have those people. We actually elect them hmm. and we elect them to make the hard decisions like whether to legalise cannabis. We do not elect them to hold referendums and then make us, make us subject to murky propaganda and, and wiffle-waffle and scare tactics. Mm. You know, they, we elect them to govern. So, yeah, so, so the, whole, the whole, oh, yeah, so the fairies save the world thing <laughs> is like, we have fairies. We elect them. Yeah, so, so um, you'll be looking for um, a satisfactory use of the mandate by the Labour government. I think I think that would be quite abundantly clear. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so 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 um, I, I was trying to kind of produce that thing. Well, not it was wasn't to make people think, but if you make people have a powerful wish, then they're going to start hopefully thinking a bit about that, as well as just having the experience of going, oh, my God, my wish has been gratified. Um, other people object strenuously to the fact that, you know, human life is suddenly being managed by people mm. from off. And they think that I'm endorsing that. Well, representing... There's a bit of a confusion these days um, in fiction that there is... It seems to be there's a lot of people who think that if you represent something, you're endorsing it. It's like, <laughs> that's... Why we write fiction is actually to, you know, to actually enter the grey territory. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, but the, the people who feel uneasy about that, they're right too. Because mm. the idea that to solve climate change, we might have to give up a whole lot of the things we've enjoyed and live good lives, live reasonable lives, but... But to stand still and live quiet lives for two generations, if that will make a great deal of help to the planet, you know, to sort of almost as if, you know, sort of stop taking up so much space, just calm down, you know, stop eating so much, just mm. chill, humanity, chill. Um, and you'd have, but, but, the, but the, any generation born into the quiet time, if we were sensible enough to have a quiet time, 
they wouldn't know different and they would entertain themselves according to the time that they'd come into. Well, that's what we see in the book, isn't it? Those it's, communities, you know, I, I, one of my favourite is those communities in the, in the northern areas who simply disappeared and then came back with packets of seeds yep. later on and new skills, new gardening skills. And the mayor who said, I'll, I'm not going to speak to anyone except someone who's going to help me build a glass house. Yeah. You know, the, yep. human beings have adapted. Yes, story. yeah, and they're, and, they're, and they're being helped. I mean, this, mm. this, there's, but, the, but it's not being done for the human beings. It's been done for the, I mean, the, all the way through mm. the book, right from the moment that Beatrice is killed and you've got you in the middle of that aching green tunnel of oaks. Mm. The oaks are present. The trees are there. The trees are witnesses. Yeah. The trees are actors too, because the trees are the ones. And when at the end they say we weren't praying to the right God, I just caught in the proofs. The proofreader in America turned that turned God into capital G again, and I was going, no, the right God that was being prayed to is. Is Schiff, the little god of the marshlands, the you know, little second, god, the, the little god, mm. the, the second main character of the book, and the ones doing the praying are the vegetable life. Mm. <laughs> yes, mm. yeah. but the nature that that lives in this book is it's a sentient nature in every way. I mean, I know sentient nature is sentient. Or trees are real, anyway, apparently. So, yeah, yes, yeah. If we, if we, yes, I mean they've they've got a connected um, reactive communicating forests do yeah that's the research about mm. forests in terms of the sort of the voltage that puts into that this story having all of that to power the story along as part yes of and it's hidden world. because the story is about hidden things mm. so there's a whole lot of um the the shift is a spell on him that makes him look inconsequential. So he's he is slighted and insulted all the way through the book by various people, and um, he never reacts as if it hurts him. Mm. He's he's so used to being seen as much smaller than he is because he's been disguised to save his life. Mm. Um, and and you know there's all and and the thing that everyone's looking for is also hidden. And um, towards the end of the book, you get a chapter where someone, one of the, uh, a she, a fairy with a very bad character, decides to sort of cast a glamour and hide something. So it just sort of plays out the hidden mm. thing in the, in the, well, I did it not for plot purposes, but but to add interest to uh, to a scene, to, to things that had to, there were things that had to happen that were going to be dramatic in themselves, but in order to make them even more dramatic, I removed one of the main characters who's present, but the person, the point of view character telling that chapter doesn't know they're there. Mm. <laughs> so it's, oh, I had such fun with it. <laughs> yeah. You're talking about shift rereading this book. I suppose I was more alive to the sadness of his story, which is also the sadness of sisters. You know, we come back to that as a theme in this book. The two sisters who we begin with and one loses the other sister. The, the two sisters who are Shift's female relatives, one of whom feels desperate guilt, I think, by the end, or regret at least yes. at how she's behaved. And then, of course, the two ravens because they're sisters. Yes, I, I well. made um, um, Hugan and Moon and I put, put them in. I mean, yep, talking animals. 
<laughs> um, <laughs> sisters. Except they're gods. Um, yes, and they're sisters. I decided, right, these ravens are female. Mm. <laughs> yeah, just seemed to work, yeah. Mm. Why sisters? What's oh, I was running with the sisters theme. But why sisters in the first place? You know, why, are t- why that I, I have a younger sister that I'm enormously close to and I actually don't think I could live without. So I was just thinking all the time of what it would be like not to have her in my life. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a sister who's very lucky and her younger sister, very, very lucky. Mm. Yeah. Sarah. And that's the achievement of this, you know, to set these stories in different worlds, you know, in, in fairyland, which is a repurposed part of hell, in purgatory, which is very familiar, I think, to those of us who grew up Catholic. It's <laughs> a sort of <laughs> a strange waiting place. But, you know, we keep coming back to that atom of the family, you know, to that very real experience that all of us have had, you know, we've had parents or, you know, many of us have had siblings. And when I was preparing to talk to you about this, I went back to Margaret Mahi, you know, I went back to the changeover again Mm. as such a terrifying story, (laughs) isn't it? Because it's the little brother, you know, it's that threat. And those stakes have to be that high, don't they, emotionally? Or or I don't know, I mean, you're the Yes, well, well, I I think that if you're reading a fantasy book in which there is a lost sister, the reader's going to have an expectation that the lost sister will be found. But Mm. the lostness is, is never, you know, never empties out. I mean... She grows into understanding what to do. Taryn grows into understanding what to do with her life and becomes a much, much happier person. But, um, you know, the lostness is still Mm. a central, you know, her loss is still a central Mm. part of her, which is just, that's just real life, really. Mm. Um, And there's a moment towards the end, isn't there, when they're sort of working out how to parley with these demons who aren't very good at diplomacy. No, and the demons are fun because they <laughs> do. Well, they find uh, individuality um, offensive. They they are legion. I, so I went with that. <laughs> Not that there are many of them, but they can only think of themselves collectively, and they can't use the word "I" without practically exploding. Yeah. So so if you insult them, you you refer to them just as you, you by yourself. So, so they're you know. communists, basically. Yeah, well, yeah, mm, yeah, yeah. They're intensely, intensely communist. So, yeah, and they're, they're repulsive and they're untrustworthy and, and so on, but they have a point, you know. They have a cause that's a just cause. So, I, yeah, I had, I had fun with mm. my demons. And one, one thing that I had real fun with was the fact that the demon activity in the book appears as something that MI5 is interested in. Yeah. The MI5 think it's cyber terrorism and it's demons the whole time. Um, so so the MI5 and the, the character who's actually MI6, so he never declares it, but it's obvious he's MI6, Raymond Price. I had a lot of fun with them. But I started off, when I first started writing the book, um, the other point of view character, Jacob Berger, who's a police detective in, in the book, as mm. it turned out, was actually MI5. And then I kept trying to make him believably MI5 and still a point of view character. So I read and read and read MI5 stuff until I had this amazing 
understanding that even if you read Stella Remington, who'd been head of MI5 and was now writing thrillers about it, or you read factual books about memoirs by people in MI5, their self-actualization was so mystifying and so um, sort of some, somehow fo- there was fo- so deep false so falsehood mm. or falsification in their self-actualization that I realized that I did not believe MI5 written by anyone from MI5. Mm. Mm. And then I decided, well, okay, I cannot write this point of view character from it because I have to make this person believable and Apparently, it's impossible. Apparently, That's they don't believe. Yes, they apparently they don't believe themselves. Yeah. <laughs> I, it was just this weird thing. So then I made him a police detective. But then I was left with Raymond Price, and Raymond Price wasn't a point of view character, so I could do as much with him as I wanted to. The brilliantly flash, flashily dressed Raymond Price. Who's he's MI six though? MI six. Yeah, yes, he's MI six. Which he never says. He just yes. calls himself when he's first... But they never do, do they? Yes. Well, when he arrives in the first place in Taryn's hospital room, she says, says you're, you know, she, he's asking her questions about these men and, and her signing line. When she's, she's the author of a book about burning libraries. And these men came along and asked her questions, and they were Arab men, you know, and, and MI5 is interested in them. And she says to this man asking a question, you're MI5, and he says... I'm a public servant. <laughs> yeah. Which is true. After, so he, continues yeah. to, he continues to be sort of sinister, but he's a fall guy. I mean, it's really quite... And he represents all the governments of the mm. world in the end. He like, comes like to negotiate. The, the, whole of, the whole of the powerful of the world, the powerful of the world we live in, become fall guys, mm. really. And she has to talk quite sternly to him. Well, she has to tell him the truth, doesn't she? She has to say, look, going forward, there needs to be some other purpose to civilization besides the financial imperative. She sort of says, she just tries politely to explain to him several times over, you know, what's going on. Um, well, in which she's, I guess, she's explaining to the reader. This is, this is, but she's only ever saying because Taryn's a very clever person, and she talks by making parallels. So she, she'll give you a metaphor. So she says, you can think of it this way. She's, she's mm. a person who says that, and, and one of her things is, you can think of it like, you know that thing in Star Trek, which I think they got off the, the, the Navy, where, where there's a rule that says that if the captain is no longer capable, the doctor can relieve them of duty. Well, we've been relieved of duty because we were no longer capable, hum, many mm. human beings. So, yeah. The she needs to take over. Yeah. Taryn is, she's a scholar. She is a clever woman, as you say. Her point of view and the way the book unfolds, the way the plot unfolds, it all feels like an implicit defense of a value system based on good information. Yes, that's right. Based on um, knowledge and understanding and on knowledge being available and... Treasured. Treasured. So, so, but also, and specifically libraries, but also libraries as centres of community and of education and of places where people feel, all kinds of people feel safe and welcome and um, where there can be many other activities. So, yeah, it's kind of a, mm. it is, it's, it's, a, it's a love song to archives and things being kept, but also mm. to public libraries. Like, it's just generally mm. to That's topical, to isn't libraries. it, considering... Well, 
considering what we saw happening quite recently, you know, with a treasure trove of books. Yes, well, it is. I mean, uh, various people have proposed science fiction stories in which all electricity suddenly, because of sunspot activity or whatever, stops. And then, you know, we need paper books. Um, Mm. I mean, I, I can see why people argue about it, but but as someone says in the book, we have warehouses and warehouses with um, ten different types of deck chair available or whatever. <laughs> um, why can't mm. we keep the books we have? Yeah. Mm. Um, books are such a good object in this story because they are powerful. They have power in them, but they're also fragile. You know, and we have lived through times already in our history. Yeah. When books have been burned. Yes. And there's something about that image, isn't there, that is... Not just burnt, but unhoused, you know. Yeah. Taryn says an, an, an unhoused human being can spend a few nights out in the cold if it's not too cold, but an unhoused book out in mm. the cold and rain, is, that's it. Yeah. That's it for the book. So. <laughs> and the book travels. I mean, it goes to prison. It ends up in prison by the end of the story, yeah, well, doesn't the, it? <laughs> or does it? But, but, yeah. Yes, because it's actually a portal by the yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a quote, I want to leave some time for questions, but there's a quote I wanted to ask you about that, again, I only picked up on the second time at, at the beginning of the book from Dr. Faustus. I am envy, begotten of a chimney sweeper and an oyster wife. I cannot read and therefore wish all books were burnt. I'm lean with seeing others eat. I found that quote weirdly contemporary. Yeah, it's a you know you you know why should you what what's the rest of the quote is the the to open the book. yeah no don't no, don't yeah. worry about it yeah but it's um yeah it's the it's specifically that that idea where oh I don't see why that's valuable you know and and you seem to value it and I and I almost hate your love of this thing I don't understand I mean you know how that's sort of kind of a a bad human instinct. It's a, a contempt for what's valued that people start regarding what's valued and they don't understand as a threat. I mean, and that's the basis of so much um, bigotry of every single kind. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, that's partly why I put that quote in there. But specifically, it goes into... And yet, in this story about the power of this book, and sort of by extension, all books, or all books collectively, all knowledge collectively, to change the world, to be enormously powerful, it seems to be saying that, well, that's not the winning side, right? Envy's not the winning side. Well, yeah. It is a powerful wish that the Mm. book has, that envy isn't the winning side, Mm. yeah. And, um, you know, the, the gods in the book, the, the two gods who are the gods of the book, and the lovely British edition has Moon, Moon, Moon on one side and um, Hugin on, on the other, so back cover, front cover. Um, the raven of knowledge and the raven of memory and desire. So, mm. yeah. Tell me about writing about the, the talking raven. Oh, look, okay, so, so I <laughs> decided to write about them, but then the, the point for me where, I, where they came to life for me because things usually come to life because of the sort of texture with which I describe their their behaviour, and mm. I sort of nailed that down with mm. with Moonan because she's she's never ceases to be a bird at the same time as being a god. Um, was the point where I where I gave them an origin story, and their origin story was once they were one bird and they were Noah's raven, the raven of no place to land, the raven of no hope who flew out 
and found nothing but the waters covering the world. Mm. And then at that point, that raven begins as a real raven, Noah sends it out, and something mythical happens to it as a result of this, you know, this hopeless um, errand. And then it flies out of the story. You don't, you don't see the raven. The, I mean, you don't, you don't really know about what happens to the raven in the Bible. And then the raven, for some reason, happens to be at Mimea's well when the god Odin appears wanting wisdom and gives up his eye and to the, to the well. That's what the well asks. And because... And, and the eye is eaten by this one raven, Noah's, Noah's raven, who then splits into two ravens mm. and becomes Odin's ravens. And by the time you get to the end of the book, the ravens have decided to move on to their third god. They were the great god of the desert's raven, and then they were Odin's ravens, and now they mm. shifts. Yeah. I love that sense of them having to move along, you know. Yeah, as, yeah. As like, yeah, they're like, yeah, they're like, they're like the, you know, the, 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 Funkies in the mafioso movies who see the way the wind is tending and go, well, right, well, okay. we need a new capo. Like, you know, the, the two very close people who suddenly say, yeah, we need new capo. <laughs> yes. So it's Moonin who offers to twiddle Jacob's thumbs for him, but she'd have to remove them. First. Yes, yes. That's yes. her sort of. Yeah, she, she takes a liking to Jacob as soon as she meets him, you know, and yeah. um, she continues to just. That could be them, actually, right now. Yeah. Um, why do you think some creatures are symbolic across cultures, across many different religions and cultures and Creatures, stories. yeah. Because they are enormously impressive and suggestive in themselves. There are things that you just look at and the force of their being, like for us, for me, it's Tui in Monsters in the Garden, the science fiction and fantasy anthology, there's a Pat Grace story with a Tui in it who's also a little god. Um, and that Tui is also deeply essentially Tui. And Pat gets the size of the being. Like, each one of them just, they're so territorial and they just pro- seem to project pleasure in life and grumpiness and self-love and all these things all at once. And so I guess the thing is that, I mean, yeah, we're, I don't know that we're reading things into them. I think we're also reading them what when we look are. at animals. And then, you know, of, of course we start having notions, mm. you know, kind of religious notions. I mean, anybody who's alive and actually watching the world closely is going to start getting a bit um, Shinto on it and thinking <laughs> that, that, that there's spirit in all things yeah. and, and, you know, and, and that possibly there's even a kind of a divine intelligence that occasionally will settle oh, here yeah. and there and kind of little light will shine out. That's the way I feel about the world and... Um, just seems to be the way that human beings have persisted in feeling about the world. And then, and then the storytellers come along and harden it into both be- the beauty of myth and into the horribleness of religion. Yeah, yes. and yeah, nasty but, storytellers. But it's funny, when you're talking about that, I think about Gerald Manley Hopkins, who's such a religious poet, but, you know, the flash of kingfishers, you know, that yeah. sense of the aliveness yeah. of the yeah. world. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. In, yeah. In a, He's very religious. Mm. Oh, yeah, we have time for questions, because I think we're nearly finished. <laughs> so if anybody does have any questions for Elizabeth, hi, I love get questions. you a microphone so everyone can hear you. Kia I'm Elizabeth. I haven't read your book yet. I'm certainly going to. It sounds as though it's incredibly multi-layered and has got so many characters and so much going on. 
Do you plan all this before you start writing or do you just launch into it? Uh, I, I have to have an idea about some key scenes and, and, and then I basically start writing. But I have things that are bugging me and they will shape what happens. And then you end up quite quickly with a, with a metaphorical structure revealing itself. But I love plot. So I, you know, I make the plot so that, so that the reader will catch up on some things before the characters and know them before them, or it's possible for the reader to know them, and that there'll be some things that will be revealed simultaneously to the character and the reader so that, they can, so that the character and reader can have the simultaneous emotional experience. And that kind of shaping a book by reveals, mm. plot reveals, and by scenes with drama, and my books tend to kind of, because they have a lot going on in them, all of them do, they tend to have to set their terms and then they get this momentum, you know, and there's a kind of a rush, like the book just goes, mm. you know, like an avalanche or something at a certain mm. point. Um, and for me, the point where it totally accelerates and goes much faster is the scene on the estuary where Taryn and Jacob, the two main characters, are chained by the neck to a large tractor tyre while the tide comes in. And that was me writing a scene that I'd always had in the back of my mind for a scene in a book. But because I had a revengeful person floating around in the background who was going to turn up, that was the point. And then I was giving them a dilemma. But it's also a pause and part of the story, but it's a pause where a lot of understandings are resolved mm. one way or another, or people come to understandings. But it's also me trying to write a thriller, yes. seeing whether I can. And so it's my, um, it's my Lee Child, Jack Reacher. You certainly can. Yeah. I think it's important to say, you know, after that observation as well, that even though this is a massive book and it goes across time and space. And genres. It's and a genre genres, blending book. But there is also, a bit, the whole way through, there is this tight focus on a small group of yes, characters. And that's important. Yeah, it's, I visualised it as an intimate epic. Mm. Yeah. Which is just delicious, right? Cure Elizabeth, um... I love your book. Thank you. Um, how do you think it solves the problems that we're facing today? Gosh, well, actually, <laughs> I'd, I, I actually, I am interested in the fact that it produces that wish and makes you think, all right, how do we make that? How do we make that? How do we demand that the people who can make the decisions actually make the decisions, <laughs> right? Okay, so there's that. And that was a, quite a strong intention I had. But... What I also mean it to do is make people happy, to transport them and make people happy. And coincidentally, in a time of COVID, to to get it gets you out in the open air and walking, it gets you from world to world, it gets you in crowds, it gets you in lonely places. It's a book that carries you away. And so I'm very, very proud of its um, strong escapist character. Like it's it's... We we need. I think we. I think people need escapist things. I'm a great fan of them. Yeah. Mm. Beautiful. That's a beautiful yep. way to end. I think. Will you join me, please, in a round of applause for Elizabeth Knox? Thank you, Noel. Thank you.